Welcome to another podcast by Dr. Dennis Smith, Senior Pastor of Covenant Life Ministries. To find out more, go to lifeandfocustv.com. I want to do something this morning that um, I don't always I don't always do um, when we hit particular holidays or times when we focus on certain things. Sometimes I will feel the, the directed by the Holy Spirit to really focus on the things that pertain to that particular time or holiday. Um, and sometimes I don't. I just just really want to follow the Holy Spirit, but. Uh, really felt drawn to this this week. Now we uh, we're not through with the kingdom of God yet. Just in mind we, we're going to revisit that here in about two weeks. I've got about uh, three, four more things. I just really want him to drive this home to us and get it down inside of us. But um, today uh, I want to take a closer look at the cross. Now you always kind of run a risk with that when it comes to the American church because we have been inoculated. We have been, we have talked so much about the cross. We've heard so much about the cross for many of us that it's, that uh, for some reason it seems to have, have oftentimes lost its uh, significance or power or sense of excitement or uh, in, in our lives. It has sometimes become rather mundane and people say, oh yeah, I've heard about the cross before. Jesus died on the cross for me. And uh, we need to go deeper, folks. We need to take a closer look at the cross because people have different ideas about what the cross really means. Tell me, why did Christ have to die on a cross? I guess for all our sins. What does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. It's all, yeah, I guess. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know for not, you know. But I go to church every Sunday still. <laughs> yeah. Tell me why the cross is significant to Christianity. I think because it's where, uh, I'll say supposedly, because I'm not a uh, firm believer in the whole deal. I think it's because uh, that's where Jesus Christ was, uh, his last minutes where we were there, supposed to symbolize what he, I guess he gave for you and I, whatever. Um, well, I really wouldn't be in a position to answer that because I'm not Christian, so I really wouldn't know why it would be important to Christians, but I would assume that it would be symbolic of his love for, for people and his love for God. Tell me why the cross is significant to Christianity. Because um, according to Christianity, Jesus is the Savior, so that's where he was supposedly murdered, so that would be the focal point of where the Savior died. Tell me why the cross is significant to Christianity. Honestly, I don't know. They believe that we shouldn't have, what's the word, idols, and yet they build these things after God. You know, I read in the Bible that God doesn't want us to have 
idols or stuff like that and I just see that as hypocrisy. I'm not really big on religion, honestly. How does Christ dying on a cross save us from our sins? To be honest, I don't know why. I mean, I don't know why. It, I don't know why he, you know, what that would, that would have to do with saving us. But. If you believe in it, then as a person, it'll strengthen you to want to do what the Bible says and try and make you live your life in accord with those standards. And if you live with those standards, then you'll probably be a better off person. Why did he die on the cross? To save, uh, save the souls of people. He, he, uh, kill him right here. Kill him right here. It symbolizes what he went through over the course of his lifetime. Um, he was resurrected, and um, I know that's why we, that's why I believe in Jesus and God, and uh, that's why I'm a good Catholic, I guess. Why is the cross important in Christianity? Well, I would guess because Christ was killed on one. You know, I respect the fact that it's an important symbol of belief for others, and I do think it's a symbol that holds a great deal of power. But uh, personally, I'm not sure how much it means to me at this point in my life. Tell me why the cross is significant to Christianity. Why the cross? I mean, that's just the number one symbol. I mean, that's what he was, that's how, how he, what he died on. And I mean, it's just, when you think of Christianity, you think of, Jesus dying on the cross. A lot of people have a sense of hope, at least. I mean, because of the promises that he made. So at least that's something. There's something for everyone to uh, believe in, that he was there, that he rose, that he was something important to people. Tell me why the cross is so significant to Christianity. Well, it's where Jesus was crucified, so. For Christianity, it symbolizes that you can be saved because Jesus died for your sins. Okay. <laughs> Tell me why the cross is significant to Christianity. You wouldn't have salvation without the cross. Okay. What do you mean by that? Well, the cross symbolizes the blood of Christ. Okay. All right, you have to have that in order to wash away the sins and transgressions of mankind. The cross is where it all begins because. Christ uh, lived, he loved, he laughed, he cried, he ate, he slept, he died. He rose in three days with all power, but he had to go to the cross for all of that to, to transpire so that we have life and we can have it more abundantly. So there's no other way but the cross. There's no other way but the cross. There's no other way but the cross. You know, it's uh, not uncommon today to see the cross defiled and denigrated and denied and diluted. People, even believers, often take the cross for granted and minimize it. So, let's take a few minutes to take a fresh look, a closer look at the cross this morning. Go with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. 
New King James Version, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Here's where Paul, in Paul's writings, he says to the church, says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Amplified Bible puts it this way. Now listen to this. I made the decision to know nothing, that is to forego philosophical and theological discussions regarding inconsequential things and options while among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified and the meaning of His redemptive substitutionary death and His resurrection. Paul said, and it's said that Paul was one of the most brilliant men of his age. Sat at the feet of Gamaliel, was trained uh, and taught. Brilliant man. And yet he said, I, when I came to you, I didn't come with man's wisdom or philosophical ideas or theological truths. I came to you preaching the cross, giving you the message of the cross, and Jesus crucified for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he also says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness or nonsense. You know, when we look at the cross, we see, first of all, the message of the cross is a strange message. It's strange. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 22, the Amplified Bible says, For since the world, through all of its earthly wisdom, failed to recognize God, then God in His wisdom was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached regarding salvation to save those who believe in Christ and welcome Him as Savior. said, you know, man's wisdom could not grasp it. The intellectual part could not receive it. It goes beyond that. You cannot figure it out on your own. And he says, you know, it pleased God that since the wisdom of man had foregone or, or had chosen not to believe and felt that man was smart enough, wise enough himself to pursue the truth, didn't need the cross, didn't need the message, then Paul said, well, God chose to give the message that exactly way, exact way in a way that's foolishness to those who think they're wise. The message of the cross is a strange message. Imagine that you could somehow have life that comes out of death. It was a stumbling block to the Jews because when the Messiah came, he was supposed to simply take authority over the Romans. He was to sit on the throne and become the ruler over all the Israelites that day and would rule from Jerusalem. And so when the so-called Messiah to them came and was crucified on the cross, absolutely was a stumbling block. How could that be? And then the death on the cross was foolishness to the Greeks. You know, the Greeks were all about the uh, philosophy and wisdom. He spoke in this great intellectual center but the cross was foolishness to them. And the word foolishness here in the Greek is the word modria. And it is where we get our, it means idiocy, or it comes from, uh, that's where we get our word moron. Uh, and so it basically is saying the preaching of the cross is, is ridiculous. It's idiocy. It's foolishness. And you know, there's still a lot of people in the world who believe that, that the message of the cross is foolish. They just can't get a grasp on it. How in the world... Could someone dying on the cross some 2,000 years ago make a difference in people's lives today? They just cannot grasp it because you'll not grasp it by wisdom and intellect alone. The idea of the world being saved by Jesus dying on the cross was foolish to them because they were too proud and too boastful. It was a strange message, but it was also a shocking message because this death on the cross was horrific. More than words could say, it was brutal. 
It was one of, the, it was one of absolute torture. And we cannot begin to imagine the pain and the suffering that was endured on the cross. And you know, people are offended by that today. Uh, you will run across people from time to time who, who say, I don't, the reason, the problem I have with Christianity and Jesus dying on the cross is because it's, it's too gory, it's, it's bloody. I, this bloody gospel, I just don't get it. So they're actually offended by it, but it is a shocking message. It's also a simple message. You know, a lot of people stumble over this. Oftentimes people even in teaching the Bible try to impress people by making it, by somehow sharing their studies, their research and, and uh, using impressive language and going back to root words, which you can use some of that. But the truth is the gospel is a simple message. And I'm so thankful for that. A child can hear it and understand it. People who had very little education can hear it and understand it. In fact, sometimes it's those who had the greatest amount of education that struggle with it because it has to be received by faith. It's a simple message. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men, Paul says. And you know, for you and I who believe, you know what the gospel, the cross message is? It is the power of God and it's the wisdom of God in our lives. You know, if you were to go to the United Nations, and I assume it's still this way, it was a number of years ago, uh, if you were to visit there and could get clearance to do so, you could go into an area there that was referred to as a chapel. The interesting thing about the chapel in the United, States, in the, in the United Nations building is it's rather a little dark, uh, uh, dark room or building, and when you go in there, you'll notice very quickly that something is missing. There is no cross. There is nothing that would set it apart from any other religion, which is interesting because countries in the, because nations throughout this world are very religious, but folks, without the cross, it's empty. Without the cross, it's hopeless. And so we need to understand that the cross is a central focus, a central focal point for us when we look at salvation. Now, when we take a closer look at the cross, we'll see that the cross comes from a, uh, actually from a Latin, it's derived from a Latin, it's crux, or, uh, and it, it literally means cross. The crucifix comes from a Latin, which means fixed on a cross. You know, so that's the distinction oftentimes that you'll see. People who are, who are Roman Catholic and who are brought up in the Catholicism, oftentimes you'll see you'll be wearing a crucifix or you'll see it in their buildings. Whereas for most Protestants, or many of us, when we have a cross that's hanging around our neck or one that we have up in, uh, you know, on the wall or in a building, then it's empty. And, and that's, that's something good for you to know, is that for us, uh, that, that even though all, uh, all people in Catholicism would not necessarily hold to this idea, but much of Catholicism, the focus is still on the death and the sacrifice of Jesus even in the celebrating of the sacraments. And yet, we understand as believers that the crucifixion, we understand that Jesus being on the cross was not the end of the story. Right? Right? For us as believers, the cross is empty. It's empty. He's no longer there. He's risen from the dead. So we usually, we usually don't entertain the idea of crucifix, but cross. And you see people cross uh, as far as jewelry, decorations, artwork. You can see things about the cross everywhere. But I, and then sometimes when you see people 
uh, on television and some people in entertainment that are wearing crosses and then you look at their life, you're wondering what could it be more than a piece of jewelry? Does a cross really make a difference? It is one of the most, uh, the cross was a method of execution where a person was hanged or placed on a cross or similar structure. One of the most brutal and shameful modes of death that we've ever had in civilization. It probably originated with the Assyrians and, and then through the Babylonians. It was used, first of all, historically we find it was used by the per Persians back in 519 B.C. with Darius, the king of Persia. Alexander the Great brought it to the Mediterranean countries and, uh, in the 4th century. And then Phoenicians introduced it to Rome. And the earliest mention of the cross that we have or this uh, type of, uh, of execution uh, goes back. Uh, the first time we have in history is from Persia. And most of the time then uh, it's described that the victim was tied with his feet uh, and uh, with his hands and feet to the stake or to the pole in the ground. Uh, at those times, uh, the nailing uh, them to the, to the stake or to the cross was not used. Many times they were just beaten and uh, hung there to die, and so it could last for even days. Uh, also, at that time, it uh, was probably just one single vertical stake, and they were either hung from it or, and as we've seen before, that uh, they were impaled on, uh, on that stake. And it was a horrible, horrible kind of death. But the Romans did perfect it, and that's when you see more of the use of what we see as the cross. Uh, and it was uh, one of the most painful, the Romans in perfecting it, made it one of the most painful modes of execution that could, you could ever imagine. Uh, that's, why, that's where we get our word excruciating. It's beyond what you can imagine. Now, most likely when we think about the cross, we think about when we see the pictures, we think about Jesus bearing the cross, about um, uh, seeing uh, the cross on his shoulder. We have people today to replicate that go and they witness for the Lord and they'll have a cross that they carry with them as a witness symbol. I mean, that's a good thing. That's great. Um, I know thousands upon thousands of people have been reached because they saw this cross and they wanted to know more about it in other countries, nations around the world. Even they've devised crosses that they bear and carry down the sides of streets and through neighborhoods and cities. The cross has a small wheel on the back of it, which, you know, allows them to move easier with it. But when we see this picture of bearing uh, the cross there, that's really not accurate. The, uh, the person being crucified did not carry the entire cross, vertical uh, and horizontal. It started with what was called a storas. And a storas is a beam, and it was the horizontal beam uh, that the person was either tied to, was tied to, strapped to, and then that was the beam that they bore on their back and carried that beam to the place of execution. And there, normally, there was an existing vertical pole that was already there. If not, there was one place there at that time, but many times they were left. And what happened was the person... Would, they would lay them down uh, on the ground and they would pierce their wrist uh, there to, uh, to the beam, to the stolras, and then they would be hoisted up and then put into place on the vertical, on the vertical uh, pole there. 
And then uh, in many cases then the uh, hands, not the hands, but the wrists were nailed to the cross and the feet were nailed to the cross to hold them to it. It's beyond anything the mind can grasp. And sometimes uh, the crosses were actually equipped with what's called a sedile, S-E-D-I-L-E. And I, I believe the cross of Jesus was, and this was a small, a very small seat or platform that was placed about halfway down uh, the stake of the cross. And what would happen with uh, the person that was being crucified, uh, you know, they were, they were, death came about through asphyxiation uh, and then through the cardiac arrest. Uh, uh, and so what happened was the pressure on their lungs by being there and they could not get a full breath. They could not exercise. They had, it was a respiratory problem there. It's just beyond, some, they could not get their breath. And so what would happen was that uh, they would either have to push up on their feet, which would give a little bit of relief to breathe, because when you drop down, you would suffocate. But they also would place this small seat there, sedil, and this allowed a place for you to have a temporary resting place somewhat. When you finally give out completely, you rest on that. It was not there for mercy. It was there to extend the time of suffering. And so we believe that that uh, from, from writings, uh, from history, we, we believe that uh, the cross that Jesus hung on was probably equipped with that. Now, the cross also, we have a picture of the cross up there and the body, you know, being very high. But that was not the way it was normally uh, that, that it normally took place. Normally on a cross, the person's feet were not more than a, a couple of feet off the ground. So it's not like you're looking up, you know, 10 feet high for someone on the cross. It was kept relatively low to the ground. Now, you know, I'm not trying to just kill people's tradition or ideas on this, but it's just good for us to have some understanding, some accurate understanding of probably the way it took place. Um, and when we see the, the uh, execution of the crucifixion, it was mostly used on slaves, on disgraced soldiers, uh, on Christians, and on foreigners. It was very rarely used on Roman citizens. Um, there were times it could take uh, days for a person to die, depending on how they were crucified. Because the execution on the cross usually always followed a compulsory, a, a, a scourging, a maiming uh, that brought about uh, pain and shock. Dehydration was set in, asphyxia progressed. Uh, there was the impairment of the respiratory uh, system movement and then cardiac arrest, broken heart, we could say. And then you know the Roman soldiers were not allowed to leave the side of the crucifixion until that person was, was dead. Someone had to stay there. And oftentimes the Roman soldiers get tired. They didn't want to wait there hour after hour. And so what did they do? They would, they would uh, speed up the process. And uh, they would do that oftentimes by piercing the, the side, the heart, near the heart. Uh, they would do it by fracturing the legs, breaking bones. And sometimes they would even build a fire down toward the foot of the cross and, and finish off the smothering death. The, the person would, would smother to death from the smoke inhalation. So it, uh, it was not a pretty sight. It was, it was horrible death. But you know, when we talk about this and when we see it depicted, even though it can be depicted... Uh, 
in, in ways that, that are, seem to be very realistic, it doesn't give, it really doesn't ever do justice to the horribleness of this death. And when we see it portrayed in churches, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, it's fine for churches to have programs and plays and depict the resurrection of Christ and have one of their members hung on the cross, you know, and part of that, and then pull them up into the, into the roof or something. Without, you know, I've been, you've been to resurrection programs and plays where that happened. Churches work hard. And, and really, I mean, it's blessed a lot of people. It's good. Uh, I'm not real big on that because somehow or another, it just doesn't really, how can I say it? Sometimes it causes it to be more, more common in our mind, more, uh, I find it difficult to express because we cannot in any way simulate what took place. And so sometimes in attempting to simulate it, we lose the strength and the power of it. So it's not always the case. It's fine. Don't say I'm against it. Or I, you know, but I'm just saying that no one in no way can we get an accurate picture of just how horrendous the death of the cross, Jesus' death on the cross was. But you know, even, even with that said, the physical torture, even that great physical torture did not compare to the sacrifice of Jesus taking our sins on himself. The physical part beyond imagination. The part spiritually, the part where he would become our redeemer. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24, New Living Translation says, He, Jesus, personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds or stripes, we were healed. He took it all on himself. All the sin of mankind that demanded the judgment of God, if you will, that demanded punishment, that demanded death, Jesus took it on himself. He was placed on the cross at about 9 a.m. on the third hour, 9 a.m. And he was placed there, and for the first, first three hours in the cross, he said three different things that we have recorded. And when you look at the story of the cross, and you'll see it as you read it through the Gospels, but you'll see there, there are different things included from different gospel uh, writers. To get the whole picture, you really have to look to crucifixion by reading the uh, references, the passages in, in all of the gospels there that contain it. So in trying to summarize that there, I look and I see, well, he was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. And during the next three hours until noon, here's what we heard him say that's recorded. He said, Father... Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. We believe that was focused toward everyone that was doing. It's even, we have heard it ourselves. <laughs> but it's focused, I think, primarily to the act of what the soldiers were doing to him at that time. Father, forgive them. They really don't know what they're doing. You know, that's the mercy and grace of God. Then he said to the thief, one of the thieves on the side, there on one side that called out to him for mercy, for grace, he said, truly this day you shall be with me in paradise. That was a promise of hope and salvation. Third saying, he looked down and he saw his mother Mary and he saw his disciple John. And he spoke and he said, woman, behold your son. 
and spoke to John and said, Behold your mother, an act of compassion and love. His mother. So we see the mercy and grace of God, hope and promise of God, and love and compassion of, of God. We see that through the expressions of Jesus the first three hours. He's on the cross from 9 to 12 noon. Then something, something amazing happened. At high noon, 12 noon, darkness covered the earth. Well, did it just cover Jerusalem or did it cover the earth? It says darkness covered the earth. The word there is a clipo. It was darkness. People say, well, you know, there is this storm that blows into that part of the world and it just, you know, all the sand and the dirt, everything just becomes blocked and, and dirt. That's probably what it meant. No, it's not what it meant. Even if it did, it was, a mirac- it was miraculous that took place at this particular time, but that's not what that term means. And then there are some that say, well, it was just a heavy cloud cover, you know, kind of like an, an eclipse that happened. No, it wasn't that. This was a supernatural act of God that brought darkness on the face of the earth at 12 noon. You know when you're going to notice darkness the greatest? <laughs> and so at 12 noon, everything becomes dark. The sun is dark and the scripture says, well, why did it go dark? There's all kinds of ideas on that. Why the darkness? I think it's a picture of the awfulness of sin. It's a picture of the judgment of God on sin. People say, well, it's because God being all righteous and holy could not look on sin. I think there is a certain, a certain, in certain respects we could see that as, as something we could get out of that. But it was darkness. This was a picture of a life without God. This is a picture of the judgment of God is darkness. Supernatural darkness. Then you find supernatural separation. This is amazing. <clears throat> before 3 p.m. that <clears throat> before 3 p.m. that afternoon, you find that. Um, uh, Jesus cries out. This is after he's been on the cross over three hours. He cries out. He cries out. Now, how in the world would you have the strength to cry out? He cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, people make fun of him thinking that he's calling out to Elijah because of the, because of the language he's using. But uh, I think they knew better than that. I think it was just sheer mockery. Basically, he was saying, God, you're mine. Where did you go? You know, if you read Psalm 22, you'll find these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You'll find that that is a foretelling of that, a picture of that. And then you ask yourself the question, okay, there's separation between Jesus and the Father, God the Father. How in the world can that happen? Can you tell me how the Trinity happens? <laughs> you know, we can't really get it in our minds, our finite minds, exactly how the Trinity works, that God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. So we can't understand the unity, so it's also difficult for us to understand the separation, isn't it? And so at that particular time, there was a separation. Did Jesus die physically? Yes. Did he die spiritually? Yes. Was he separated from God? Well, he was separated from fellowship with God, but he was not separated from the nature of God. Then Jesus said, I thirst. And a soldier took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, like with a hyssop branch, if you will. And um, it was probably about 18 inches long since the cross. He was not up that high off the ground and placed it, uh, gave it to him. Now, people say, well, that was a true act of mercy because it, it, it temporarily would, would assist them, you know, they... The, the burning, the, the, uh, their thirst that would quench a momentary thirst. 
But the problem is with that is that it would oftentimes extend the torture, allowing that person to even live a little bit longer. So it was not always an act of mercy. You know that when Jesus died, the last thing that Jesus heard on earth was people mocking him. But that's what was ringing his ears when he finally said, it's recorded specifically in John 19, where Jesus, and it says he cried again, get this, with a loud voice. He cried again with a loud voice. This is after all these hours on the cross. After going through the hours of torture and beating, bearing his cross, hung on the cross, up there for hours, and he still had, this was a strong man. I mean, just in the natural sense, he was a strong man. He'd never been sick. And uh, he was a man that lived to please the Father. He never sinned. So he was here and he cried. He was bearing the sin of people, but he came to this point. He cried again with a loud voice and he said, it is finished. The plan of God, the purpose of God for him coming to die in our place, it was finished. It was finished in the sense that he came to establish the way for the church to be established. It was finished, the work that he had come to do. And then he said one other thing. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It says he cried out again with a loud, agonized voice, and he gave up or yielded his spirit voluntarily dismissing it and releasing his spirit. If you've ever been around someone who was dying and you were there at their last breath, and it's depending upon the, that person's condition, of course, what type of sickness they, they have or what, what their last hours are like, it can vary. But many times with people that are dying, and we say wasting away or expiring, you'll find, sometimes you'll find that just before that happens, there's a, there's a resurgence of strength. It's almost like they come back to life. Say, I've seen it happen. But then you'll see them come to a point to where you just see, it's as if you can, it's almost like you can see the Spirit lead them. It's just, you can see it happen. And what you'll notice that, if you're very close to them, and I've been by the side of people that have died, and when you, when you see it happen, and even where you can even touch them, when you see that happen, you will hear, it'll come to a point of stillness, and then you'll hear just, whew, they just expel the last breath. They expire. The interesting thing about it is, is Jesus did not expire. Jesus did not die as a result of physical suffering that was placed upon him. He didn't die because man killed him. He didn't expire because of what he had faced. He voluntarily, once it was finished and he had done all he was to do and he completed the work for redemption of man, he just simply dismissed his spirit from his body. Imagine, what a miracle. The miracle of supernatural departure. He didn't whisper, he didn't moan. He screamed out, I commend my spirit to you. Amazing. Amazing. He literally called, get this, he literally called his spirit outside of his body and let the body die. The Bible says, Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, 
I lay it down of myself. He did that for you. He did that for me. And when that happened, and it was the end of the time of the cross, it was finished, he committed his spirit, his spirit left him. Then suddenly, of course, daylight is coming or brightness is returning and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom in the sanctuary where offerings were made there on the day of Passover and probably thousands of people around and we don't know how many lambs or sheep were being offered on the day of Passover but there as the priests were doing their duties and on the day of atonement Yom Kippur when the the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies there. No one could go past that veil. No one could enter into what was termed the presence of God, the holiness of God. No one could enter except that high priest one time a year and that was rather dangerous even at the hat. No one could do it. No one could get past that. No one could get to that presence of God. But when Jesus died on the cross, immediately, immediately from the top to the bottom, which means it's a God thing, from the top to the bottom, God tore it apart and opened up the way for man to come into God's presence. Powerful, powerful word. And I just wonder what it had been like if you'd been one of those Jews there celebrating Passover at that particular time. Amazing. We believe that Jesus died at exactly the time that the Passover lamb was slain. The Jews. Amazing. Not only was there earth, not only was the veil, the earthquake, the veil was torn from top to bottom, but it says that the rocks were split and several tombs were opened and people were, that had died came to life, were resurrected. And it said a little while afterwards, they went into Jerusalem and they walked around and talked to people. That's the power of God. Life comes from him. Death couldn't hold him. When we look at a closer look at the cross, we see, first of all, the terrible consequences of sin. Sin hurts, sin kills. So then why is sin so attractive? Why is it sometimes so easy, it seems, to sin or to disobey God? Well, we can see that is the nature of man. That's the way this world system is built. Subject to temptations every day. Our spirit man, not alive or not strong. And when our spirit man is not strong, then, we're, then, then it, it makes it more difficult for us to resist temptations and, and to do what's right. Sin is a terrible thing. Never heard anyone when they came toward the end of their life if they were anywhere in their right mind come to the point and say, you know what? The only thing I regret about my life is that I didn't sin more than what I did. Never. But I've heard a lot of people come toward the end of their life and regret that they'd thrown their lives away or they, they had sinned against God in so many ways. You know, as Christians, even don't we, as Christians, don't we sometimes take sin so lightly? We take it so lightly. But God takes it very seriously. Why? Because he's a, some type of tyrant that's up there waiting for us to fail, waiting for us to sin. No. It's because he knows that anything that sets, anyone, anything that sets himself, itself against him and what's right and what's good always brings harm to us. And so sin always brings death. The Bible says all of sin and comes short of the glory of God. There's not one perfect, no, not one, as far as human beings are concerned. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. So we see, first of all, that sin has terrible consequences. 
Secondly, we see that when we visit the cross a little bit and examine a little bit closer, we're reminded of the amazing love of God. We see the terrible consequences of sin, and then we see the amazing love of God. Do you know it's interesting when you go back to Revelation chapter 13, 8, it says that Jesus was slain from the foundations of the earth. What in the world does it mean that Jesus was slain from the foundations of the earth? That in a sense, before man was born, Jesus was slain. What in the world does that mean? I think it, it shows us that our God, who is a sovereign God in the sense that he is all-powerful and he is all-knowing, our God provided for man's redemption and salvation even before it was necessary. Before man even sinned, there was already God's provision for man's redemption. I'm telling you, God was going to perfect his plan, man, regardless of how man messed it up. So Jesus, from the very beginning, says, I love man enough that I'm willing to do this. Can you imagine that this was always in the mind of God that this was going to take place? Amazing. The amazing love of God. On one hand, you see that Jesus is fully sinned because he's taken on the sin of everyone. But you see, on the other hand, that he is without sin because he is the righteousness. He is, he is a righteous person who's never sinned. It's amazing because what you see here is instead of having the lamb and then you have the sacrifice, you see that Jesus is both the lamb and the sacrifice. He gives himself. He dies on the cross for us. A message that's, you know, one of the old hymns says, tell me the old, old story. And it's referring to this. And the reason I thought I wanted to bring this up for a few minutes this morning is because I think there needs to be something inside of us, not just when it comes around this time of year, but something inside of us on an ongoing basis that reminds us of God's tremendous love, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life on the cross for us. He shed his blood for us. So the terrific consequences of sin points to God's judgment. God is perfect. He's holy. We say, well, why doesn't God just blink, blink? Why doesn't he just look away at sin? Because God has to be, God is truth. God is perfect. God is just. God is holy. He doesn't contradict himself. And so how in the world are you just and holy and you're also full of mercy and grace and love? You see it in Christ. You see it that God, God was able to work through his son Jesus to appease the wrath, to forgive us of our sins. And he, get this, here's, here's what it's all about. He who knew no sin, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. That's where the judgment, judgment of God came upon that sin. So that we might become right with God. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That is the judgment of God appeased by the sacrifice of his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that he might be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, which means Jesus is our propitiation. He's our mercy seat. He renders us righteous because of what he did for us. We are rendered righteous when we place our faith in him. The final thing this morning is 
Not only when we really take closer to the cross do we see just how terrible sin is and God's judgment on sin is necessary. Not only do we see the amazing love of God that he would send his only begotten son and that God so loved the world that he gave him to us that if we believe on him that we would receive everlasting life. Not only that, but finally, when we visit the cross and closer look at the cross, one thing that you're going to be happy about and one thing you can celebrate is the fact that there's where you find the pathway to victory. That's the way to victory. It comes through the cross. You know, the fact is, is that you have the cross, one side of the cross, and you have another side of the cross. We sometimes bow before him and we bow before the cross, but sometimes we need to get another picture of that in our mind, that for the believer... Jesus has already done all that's necessary to do. He's already given everything that, for everything that we need to live godly life. Everything we need has already been accomplished for us on the cross, right? It's already been done. We trust him and believe him for that. We receive that. And then you know what you do? You step to the other side of the cross. Too many people are still living back here on this side of the cross. Receive what God's already done for you. Receive what Jesus has already done in your life. Claim it. Practice it. Walk in it every day and learn that you're going to step to the other side of the cross and then what you're living in is resurrected living. Now we'll get that a little bit more next week, but resurrected living. I don't ever like to teach or preach about the cross and leave him hanging there. Because although we can hear this message, which is a very serious message, and it's heartbreaking. And it, it can be shocking at times. And it reminds us of just how terrible it was. And that it was our sins that put him there. And that through his great love and mercy, he has brought us to a place of forgiveness now. Because of what he did for us. Now let's take the step and say, I believe that. I receive it. I am now alive because he's alive. I'm going to live out the life that he, did, that he gave his life for me to live. Because Christ died for my sin, I'm dead to sin. It doesn't have power over me anymore unless I give it to it. Christ has been raised from the dead. Folks, we talk about the cross. This is not just about facts of history and a lot of information. It's not about talking about things we've heard about all of our lives. It's about believing it. It's about receiving it. It's about relying on it. It's about taking it down deep inside of our lives and being grateful for it because through the cross, we're forever changed. Through the cross, the chains of sin are broken. Through the cross, hell is defeated. And through the cross, we're restored, opening up the way to the kingdom of God here on earth and giving us a home in heaven. Isn't that great? Isn't that really great? Yes. Thank God for the cross. So I guess we need to ask ourselves a question this morning. I need to remind ourselves, what, when I think about the cross, what does it really mean to me? What does it really mean to us? And then sometimes, you know, when I'm reminded of that and I take a closer look, I think something like this. How in the world could I ever be ungrateful? And how in the world could I ever complain and gripe? And how in the world could I get caught up in trivial things? You know, Jesus would not necessarily be considered a hero today in the way heroes are observed today in Hollywood and in sports because this hero said, I'll lay down my life for you. 
I lay down my life for you. And he is our hero because it's through him that he brings that supernatural power and that supernatural work, the presence of the Spirit into our lives. God help us today. Remind us today of the beauty and the ugliness of the power and the price of the cross. Help me, dear God, never to lose sight of that, but help me to receive it by faith and walk in the privileges that I have because of it. In Jesus' name.